Welcome to the Lost Gardens of Heligan podcast, Beauty in All Things. I'm Alistair Moore, Head of Gardens and Estate, and each month we'll be revealing the inner workings of Heligan in all its glory, from soil to seeds, bulbs to bees, past, present and future, all from right here in the Lost Gardens of Heligan on the Cornish coast. It's early in the morning at Heligan, on a chilly March dawn. There's no one else in the garden as yet, except for me. And I'm in the old head gardener's office, which sits uh, along the north wall of the flower garden. Um, the entrance to which is rather charmingly obscured by a, uh, a veteran rhododendron full conori. The room itself is is not big. It's roughly, I don't know, 12 foot square, something like that. I'm sitting at a venerable roll-top desk in one of the corners. Across from me is a brick fireplace. The fire's not yet lit, but, uh, gosh, there must have been thousands of fires lit here over the years. And the air is sweet with a scent of old wood smoke. Logs are neatly stacked in an opposite corner under a wooden counter, above which are innumerable jars filled with an array of beans and peas and seeds. It really is like an old sweet shop, but instead... Instead of sherbet lemons, we have Veach's Western Express, a lovely pea. What is this? Uh, runner beans, yes, yeah, Scarlet Emperor. It's really, and <laughs> it's, you can imagine a queue of keen gardeners with their pocket money just waiting to come and get a quarter of a pound of each. The office itself was the nerve centre of the garden for 200 years. Generations of head gardeners have pondered and planned season after season of plantings and crops at Halligan. From this small building, like a little brick acorn, a great garden grew. And one of the splendid gardeners who beavered away in this very room, is Philip Macmillan Browse. Philip was key to Heligan's restoration, providing the horticultural vision, experience, knowledge on which that restoration depended. As well as being Heligan's horticultural guru, Philip is a writer, author, lecturer, and at one time was director of the RHS at Wisley. Now, in his 80s, he is still our go-to man for advice and general wisdom, and we'll be tracking him down for a chat about that ever-present subject at Heligan, seeds. And while seeds have set me all Twitter this morning, let us not forget about spores, and in particular ferns, and in even more particular, 
focus tree ferns. Tree ferns are a massive part of Heligan and we'll be heading down to the jungle to meet with Cindy Madison, fair daughter of Mabagissi and one of Heligan's longest serving and best loved gardeners. So join me on our podcast. So this morning I find myself in a very comfortable kitchen, uh, sitting across a wooden table from Philip Macmillan Browse. And for those of the listeners that aren't aware who Philip Macmillan Browse is, apart from having a highly distinguished horticultural career, he brought the horticultural vision to Heligan during the Restoration. And we're here to talk in particular about seeds, but knowing our previous conversations, we may stray off topic occasionally. Um, Philip, good morning. Lovely to see you. Good morning, Alistair. (laughs) Now, Philip, can I start with what may seem like a simple question? What is a seed? A seed is a structure that represents in its core, the new life form, the embryo, uh, which is produced from a pollen grain and an ovule. And we can talk about how that works if we want to. But this embryo, first of all, has to have associated with it a food reserve, uh, because if it's going to grow and produce a new plant, we call germination, If it's going to do that, it needs a food reserve to get it to a stage where it can support itself, what the scientists would call an autotrophic existence. I was about to say that myself. (laughs) Well, um, we'll try not to get too technical. (laughs) Um, So then you have a food reserve of some sort or other, which may be an isolated food reserve which the seed, the embryo, has access to, or it may be part of the embryo itself in the development in the cotyledons. But that's all technical. It doesn't matter. The fact is the seed has got its food reserve. And then surrounding that is some protective membranes, which may be of varying thickness, which will protect the seed, the embryo and the food reserve until such time as it is going to germinate or if time goes on and the food reserve degenerates, it simply dies. You have to think that the vast majority of plants produce hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands sometimes seeds and the actual survival rate in terms in the wild of how many plants are produced is often non-existent Mm -hmm. or maybe 0.1%. And that actually leads on quite nicely to the very different subject of seeds in a productive garden, where that ratio of of success and failure um, needs to be a bit more precise. Precisely. Well, first of all, Mm -hmm. if you're going to grow seeds in the productive gardens, you would as most people will have experienced, you will plant a variety of a particular crop. Now, to get that variety, somebody has quite intricately, over time, bred together parents and crossed and selfed and so on until you get a variety of seed 
with a fairly stable genetic content. But it is what we call open pollinated, which means that you're dealing with a whole variety of characteristics. And over time, you will get variation and selection. And that's why you have seedsmen who used to sell something like the French bean blue cocoa and you find you have from the 1920s varieties like Ryder's blue cocoa or Bunyard's blue cocoa which were simply strains but which had been selected those particular nurserymen. Nowadays you don't get so much of that because mostly seeds are produced on a huge scale and a particular variety will only be produced by one producer somewhere in Europe and that means that you whatever variation happens and selection occurs is where the variety goes as it were and whether it is the same genetically as it was in 1920 or 1900 is a matter of conjecture so that then leads us quite nicely to heligan itself um and you you were speaking of um <clears throat> seeds and varieties from the 1920s. Obviously, part of your great vision for Heligan was um, a focus uh, and an unusual focus at the time on heritage crops, heritage varieties of fruit and vegetable. And now in 1990, finding seed in order to grow these varieties must have been a bit of a challenge. It was very much a challenge. We're talking well before the digital age and internet and ability to source these things around. Nowadays, you simply go onto some social media page, <laughs> or so I believe. Yeah, no, <laughs> if I absolutely. Don't do, and You're you say, I'm looking for this, and somebody yeah. will tell you where to find it. Yeah. But, yeah, and of course, back in 1990, the words heritage and heirloom were very, very specialist. You hardly ever heard the well, words what do they, at all. What, what, what do we mean by that? Well, it's a matter of conjecture. I never know what the definitions <laughs> of heirloom are. Heirloom is largely an American term, which we seem to. And heritage is one that we seem to have adopted in this country. But now they seem to be interchangeable and writers yeah. use both. Um, what we're talking about mostly is varieties, I suppose, you, the best way to describe it would be like an antique. A proper antique is 100 years old. That means, of course, that you're moving on every year, so more and more things are becoming antique. But as far as Heligan was concerned, I more or less decided that in order to get a reasonable palette of varieties, because if you go back much earlier than that, you are running into trouble in finding a sufficient variety mm. of of seeds which are still existent. Because well, so much earlier than 1900? 1890-ish. Or... Yeah. So we sort of decided, or I decided, because at that time I made the decisions because everybody else were making decisions about buildings yeah. and landscape and everything. Uh, so it became my baby. And I said, right, we're going to develop a palette of plants which represent the late Victorian era. And if we can't really find varieties back that far, then we will uh, take them to the First World War. And if we can't get that far, then we won't 
try, mm -hmm. at least when we started, we won't try to grow those. Now, subsequently, of course, since then, many of these things have come out of the woodwork as a result, if you like, of Heligan existing. Because I don't suppose many people will realise what an influence Heligan had on the, variety, the palette of varieties that became available to the amateur gardener because they went to Heligan, which was the only Victor well, sort of Victorian garden growing vegetables and fruit of that era. Then they went back and asked for these varieties and can't get them. So the seedsmen started to produce them. And a classic example is rainbow chard. Because you go back to Victorian eras and the chard, there was a coloured variety called Chilean chard, which of the red one became ruby chard, but there was a yellow variety and so on, and mm -hmm. they were all known as Chilean chard. And I think that those were in Australia were bred up and you get the multicoloured ones you get now. And I was able to bring them back to this country uh, so this is a very good... So the rainbow chard, you had to source in Australia. Yeah. Yeah, that's how I got it. Well, um, other things just came out of the woodwork sometimes. I remember the P. Veach's Western Express, which yeah. at that time I hadn't even heard of. And suddenly this bloke pops up in the garden with a jar of seeds. He says, this is Veach's Western Express. You'll want that. And it turned out it's an early pea produced by Veaches of Exeter. Good Lord. Uh, who, who, who was he? I have no idea. I don't remember. didn't have time to always acknowledge these things. You oh said thank goodness. you very much and so gave, gave them from veg out of the garden. Literally, he walked in with a jar of this pea that, yeah. who knows, he may have had the last yeah. um, sort of surviving batch of. And he came with a jar... He sort of shook his hand, gave him a few cabbages, off he went, and here we are. Yeah, that happened quite a lot. Extraordinary. Then, of course, the one saving grace for the old varieties is what was the organic guru Lawrence Hill's original institution known as the HDRA, mm -hmm. uh, which collected any old variety that they could and tried to perpetuate it from seed and they were very helpful in the early days when I was looking for varieties of seeds like alderman and all those sort mm -hmm. of things and old runner bean seeds like uh, painted lady which is ten a penny nowadays but was hardly obtainable in those days there were so many of them which if you really had the internet then, you would have found that there were people who had them. Yeah. But if you went to Sutton's or any of those sort of seed houses, and especially you have to remember, you were post-1970 when they all, because of EC regulations, had to have genetic stability and recognition of varieties. The whole thing had been so slimmed down mm -hmm. that lots of these varieties had just been dropped because it was too expensive to certify them. So consequently, seedsman's list. And it's even true today. You look at a seedsman's list of vegetable seeds and compare it with Carter's of 1920 or, or Thompson and Morgan of 1900 or those sort of things, which were sort of like small books. No, well, even... I mean, we were talking earlier about the 
um, potato exhibitions of the late 19th century. Yeah. And there would be literally thousands yeah. of, or oh, at thousands least 1,800 of, different varieties of potatoes. Yeah, potato. there were thousands of plates mm. from different exhibitors, yeah. but representing 800,000 varieties. Insane. You know, not all of them were necessarily different. No. <laughs> different names. Yes, <laughs> because... In those days, there was nobody controlling the names, mm. so you could call it your own name if you wanted to and market it. Yeah, that's it. So it's very difficult from the literature because when we started this whole exercise, I had to find these varieties. So the thing I did, I obtained every major gardening book that I could from the 1800s from people like Mackintosh, Thompson that went through six yeah. editions, Anderson, all those sort of people and sort of copied out their lists of varieties. Then I got to know those and I went through catalogues and things yeah. and see which I could find that was still going. And see, in, in other words, in order to develop Halligan, it was quite an interesting exercise in terms of varieties, if you want, whether it was potatoes or anything else. You had to start from what I call the inside out. You had to think in terms of what was available then. I am a head gardener. What can I look at? Where can I get these things from? What do I know? Yeah. Um, and put all those together because there was no other way of doing it. So that was the way my mind went in determining what the cropping program would be, what varieties we could use. You had as well to remember that any intelligent head gardener, and most of the gardeners of reasonably big estates were extraordinarily intelligent men because there was no other path to come up from wherever you were yeah. in social classes you could make your way to head gardener quite quickly if you were at all bright. So when we came to Heligan, you had to decide on what you were going to do and then stand still, because that's what we were doing. Otherwise, we'd have end up, as there were improvements all the time, having modern varieties, wouldn't we? So, oh, there's so many questions, Philip. Firstly, having got the seed, having sowed the seed and had great success with it and planted out, then there's actually conserving that seed for the for the next year. How did you go about? I suppose it, training the gardeners to think in that. Well, I don't know. That I would say there was a lot of training. It mm. was just what people picked up because. At that time, I was involved literally day by day. I was there every day mm -hmm. in the early, you know, in the 1990s yeah. and could be on top of it. And then, of course, uh, in about 1995, 96, Kathy Cartwright came and she, without her, we would never have got anywhere. Mm -hmm. She was the cement that held the practical operations together because she was sufficiently experienced sufficiently focused and sufficiently dedicated well, and it's and, wonderful to have her back in yeah, the productive team today but she would pick up you see i'd only have to say to her we need to do this or mm. we need to do that and she'd do it so that when it came to thinking well we've got to save runner bean seed we've got to save pea seed we've got to save climbing french beans and climbing french beans are a prime example of 
varieties that you couldn't get at all. I mean, we have varieties like Case Knife and Lazy Wife and things that everybody's heard of nowadays, but then nobody had heard of them. We got some. So once you were growing them, you had to collect your own seed. Now, the garden is only so big and the rows are so long, and if you have them too close together, they'll cross. So you had to be sure that people understood that they took the seeds for reproduction from the farthest end of the row because you couldn't guarantee that the closer you got to another variety that it wouldn't have cross-pollinated. And that you want to take the seed from a really healthy plant that's yeah, all, produced all, well. All that and, sort yeah, of yeah. stuff. But, and then, of course, we collected so many varieties that we had to start rotating them year by year so we didn't grow the same varieties every year because we needed to keep our stock going because we sort of became a sort of conservation centre. Philip, thank you very, very much indeed. And I look forward to having another conversation like this very soon. Thank you. Cheerio. Ah, there's Cindy. Hello, Cindy. How are you? I'm all right, Alistair. Thank you. You? Very well, very well. Now, Cindy, would you mind introducing yourself to our listeners. Okay, so I'm Cindy Madison, Supervisor of the Jungle and Stewardry Gardens, the Lost Gardens of Heligan. Beautiful. And Cindy, you've got quite a history in the local area, but also in the gardens. Would you give us a flavour of that, please? Okay, so I actually came to Mavagissi 53 years ago and... When I was a young teenager, I found a jungle. (laughs) Um, And it was my first sight ever of tree ferns growing, and they just blew me away. They were amazing. So I actually used to play in the jungle of Heligan with my mates from the village. And my love of the place grew from there, really. And today I'm working here. And not just working, but uh, queen of the jungle. Cindy, could you... Explain a little bit about actually where we are. Okay, so at the moment we are standing down in the middle of the jungle on a path called Traceda Steps, which we dug out and finished about three years ago. And we did that because before the path was dug out, you could see amazing tops of tree ferns but you just catch a glimpse and we thought it would be nice to actually show them off to the visitors because there's some amazing old original tree ferns down here that were probably planted in the late 1890s. And so now you can actually walk down these steps and see these tree ferns that are like living beings. They have a presence down here. And we thought we'd call the the steps Traceda Steps because it's a link back to the two brothers that were plant hunters for the Tremaines back in the day, and they actually brought tree ferns over here. And my word, Cindy, these tree ferns are magnificent. I mean, we're standing under one now, which must be 15 foot high, and uh, the fronds are at least two and a half metres long, and seeing the light fall through them, it's like some sort of um, tracery. It's like a... I don't know, a leafy stained glass window. And there's one just 
ten foot away from us where you could I don't think you could get your arms around it, could you? You couldn't. That's the the beast of the tree ferns. <laughs> um and also I love I love the way there's one down here. When I first started that was suspended above the ground where it had gone over and it just starts putting its own supports down and it's touching the ground and growing up from that. They do their own thing like like little animals. No, well, exactly. The the tree fern Cindy's um, referring to is like an elephant's trunk. It, um, it comes up out of the ground and then stoops down and then comes up again. In a, it's almost like an S shape, but it is extraordinary. And the last curve is sitting in the middle of the stream that runs down to the, the ponds below. It is extraordinary. Now, and of course, Cindy... A lot of these tree ferns have been planted, but some of them have not. Can you explain a little bit about that? Yeah, I would say actually the majority are... Well, obviously the original ones were planted, and then we have a huge amount that have grown. They naturalise. This is a perfect conditions down here. It's a little bit humid. It doesn't get the wind. And they spore, and they... They just spore all over the place and grow. In fact, they're so prolific, sometimes we have to dig a few out and relocate them. So we have a lot of tree ferns down here. So they love these conditions. They'll take, they'll take sun, semi-shade, shade, not dark, dark, but they love that moist atmosphere. That's what keeps them going. And the fact that there's no wind, otherwise they just get desiccated and dry out. But there is a, there's a, a little breeze that probably dr- drifts up the, the the valleys right now. There's there's little fragments of um, spores uh, floating down um, in the sunlight. It's extraordinary. And one of the things I absolutely love about the jungle, and particularly about Trezeda Steps, is the fact that it feels primordial you can almost imagine a dinosaur stepping out of the undergrowth at any moment and in a way it's not far off the truth because ferns were one of the earliest sort of members of the uh, plant family to evolve and their form of reproduction spores predate seeds and so the spores are produced asexually in their thousands and they're teeny tiny and so with the valley here much like Cindy drifting up from Mevagissi as a, a young girl these spores will gently float up the breezes from Mevagissi and up the valley and land on the, 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 the moist and fertile soil here and grow into these amazing tree ferns and it really is, it's such a, a special place. Well, thank you so much, Cindy. That was fantastic. I think I'm just going to find myself a nice little tree fern to, to, to sit under for the rest of the day because it, it's Soak just the absolutely gorgeous here. Thank you, Cindy. Welcome. Thank you so much for listening to the Lost Gardens of Heligan podcast, The Beauty in All Things. For more information about the podcast, 
please visit our website, heligan.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, please do like and subscribe. And I look forward to chatting with you next month about the beauty in all things.